So how confident are you with your memory? Would you guarantee that what you remember is true? How much would you bet on it? Would you know for a fact that the squirrel that you saw last week was actually a squirrel? Let's start this episode of the series with how our memories change. Have you ever played the telephone game? If yes, then you're just like me and many other people. If no, I'll explain it. It's a game with a line of people. The first person creates a phrase, something so simple that they whisper to the next person. It could be, uh, Bruce Wayne is Batman, or I want an orange, something simple like that. That next person needs to whisper what they heard to the next person in line. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. They whisper exactly what they hear. The point is, is that it is never the same thing as the original when the game ends. Our memory works the same way. Each time we recall our memories, it changes how we remember them. So, for example, if we remember a story, and let's say you remember it correctly, but then someone interjected and said, Oh, oh, but didn't Linda ask that, not Caitlin? You might change your story. The next time you recall that memory, you might say that it was Linda who asked, even if it was actually Caitlin. See, it doesn't matter what actually happened. The moment that we are suggested something that could be true, but we're not sure, it's possible that our memory changes. And this is because our memories are fluid things. The synapses and neurons that form when we encode a memory can change because they are part of a complex system that is constantly adapting. So essentially, every time we recall a memory, it changes because of what happens when we recall it. So one specific example of this is the audience tuning effect. It essentially means that when we adjust our story for a specific audience, it has the potential to change the memory. For example, we may need to adjust our story for a table of scientists about something that happened in the lab versus a table of kindergartners. The next time that we recall it, it either might be very complicated, reflecting the story that we told the scientists, or very simple, reflecting the story that we told the table of kindergartners. Researchers found that, a mem- that memory could be weakened if they gave an animal an electric shock or a drug that interferes, interferes with a particular neurotransmitter just after they prompted the animal to recall the memory. This means that, neurologically, the memory can be changed even after they had been originally consolidated. They named this memory-changing effect reconsolidation. This reconsolidation, telephone memory, audience tuning effect, whatever you'd like to call it, has actually been seen on a mass scale in the form of a conspiracy theory, of all things. See, as I explained in my first episode, this podcast came to be because of a study I heard about. In the study, they found that people who had distinct memories of where they were when they watched the video as the first plane hit the Twin Towers, this was a pretty con- common sentiment. Many people can recall exactly where they were when they heard the news about 9-11. However, the video of the first plane hitting the towers doesn't exist, but yet people remember that. Why is that? This is part of a larger concept called the Mandela Effect. The name comes from how many people... The name comes from how many... The name comes from how many people remember Nelson Mandela dying in a prison in the 80s. 
but he actually died in 2013 and was definitely not in a prison. Or, for example, people think that the Berenstein Bears, the children's book series, was spelled with an E, but it's actually an A. Or the fact that Hamilton was a president, he wasn't. Although I think now with the musical, more people know that. A lot of people will relate it to alternate timelines or realities, saying that there's worlds that exist exactly like ours, but they have minute differences, and that's why we remember them. But this isn't true. The actual scientific reason is false memories, related to reconsolidation. The memory for Alexander Hamilton is encoded in the area of the brain where the memories for the presence of the United States are stored, and so that can be easily confused. The Berenstein Bears, Steen, S-T-E-I-N, is a word that uh, we see often. It's a German word, and it's used in other things, and not normally spelled with an A, so that's how we could be confused about that. For 9-11, people would have vivid memories of where they were standing when they saw the second plane hit, and somehow that got changed into the first plane. But in summary, you can't trust your memories. They change a lot more than we think. It also means that eyewitness accounts are essentially useless, according to science. As I looked more into memory research, there's just so much research and theories and data and arguments about it, I stumbled across the application of memory with PTSD. PTSD is a severe anxiety disorder that can develop after exposure to any event that results in psychological trauma, which manifests itself in constant re-experiencing of the original trauma through flashbacks and nightmares. PTSD, uh, well, uh, the full name is post-traumatic post stress disorder, and it's very common among veterans, victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, things of that nature. It would be more accurate to call it a memory disorder, though, as opposed to an anxiety disorder. Because the brain can't get rid of the traumatic memories and keeps playing them over and over again. Circling back to the repressed memories, many victims suffering from PTSD have either repressed memories or extreme difficulty forgetting the bad memories which goes into how people are currently dealing with it. But luckily, there are lots of treatment options for sufferers of PTSD. For example, one of the newest therapies is called Accelerated Resolution Therapy, or ART. The theoretical rationale as to how ART may help clients process traumatic memories and resolve symptoms of PTSD um, is essentially that they, they try to calm the patients down through repeated sets of smooth pursuit horizontal eye movements that may facilitate a relaxation response and assist with processing emotionally intrusive memories. So they would do activities like this to try to uh, process the emotionally intrusive memories, but also try to reconsolidate them to something that is less traumatizing. Um, one of the most well-known ones is psychotherapy, uh, or therapy as it's more often called, and so they treat PTSD through a variety of tactics, one of which can be a specific series of questions that lead to repressed memories, uh, such as asking you specific things about your childhood uh, that may, may spark the repressed memories that, are, that the victim may be suffering from. Hypnosis is also one that has been known pretty, to be pretty successful to retrieve the repressed memories. Um, they, psychotherapists can also use retrieval cues, which we talked about earlier, um, and so, and these retrieval cues could be 
Again, they could be specific questions or they could be specific objects, just trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. However, there are definitely more treatment options that are way more controversial. CISD is Critical Incident Stress Debriefing, um, and it's one of the newer therapies, and it's essentially that people who suffer a painful event, uh, they believe that they should express their feelings soon after so that the memory isn't sealed over or repressed, which could lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. CISD involves a long three-hour session with a therapist trained in CISD facilitation, ideally within 72 hours of the incident. The idea is that by talking about it, it won't become repressed and that they can move on without developing PTSD. The philosophy is that the problem isn't the trauma, it's that the trauma can't be forgotten. By talking about it, then it's the hope is that it takes away a little bit of the impact of the trauma because the victims are able to process it. But studies have recently shown that it actually increases anxiety, depression, and PTSD because those who had um, under, undergone CISD a year later, they were more likely to have developed these mental disorders. But perhaps the most controversial treatment out there right now is propranolol. It's essentially a drug um, that is synthetically made uh, that inhibits protein th synthesis. Because not too long ago, they, scientists that is, discovered that memories, memory retrieval is based largely on protein synthesis. The proteins must be present in order for the memories to be recalled. But before this, there was a really large difficulty understanding how memory is accessed. Because you think about repressed memory, selective memory, all of that, it, there's not a comprehensive database on how, how all of that works because it's so difficult to study. But this new chemical that they created uh, was essentially a drug-induced reconsolidation. But there are huge ethical implications about this. Should we change people's memories just because we can? What does it mean? What happens if it gets into the wrong hands? The scientists argue that it's just like therapy, that it consolidates memories to something more positive, and it does prove to have a lower stress response. However, the implications about whether we should purposefully change our, men our memories through, uh, through drug-based treatments is still a big debate in the scientific world right now. Our current knowledge of memory is constantly expanding, and the implications of it are awe-inspiring and frightening at the same time. And our, the knowledge is not entirely complete. Lots of debates, like we've seen, about exactly what happens in our memories and how they work are currently taking place. Think about repressed memories. Some psychiatrists think that they don't actually exist, but there are lots of evidence to say that there is. Or selective memories. Scientists don't exactly agree on which ones we keep and which ones we don't. But we are moving closer to it every single day. Our memory is complex because our brain is so complex and incredibly hard to measure. The best we can do is use social experiments to try to understand how our memory is retrieved and understand how cues and triggers affect that. Like I said, our memory is everything we are. Every experience, thought, emotion, it all comes from memory. And now, hopefully, 
you understand a little bit more about everything you are. Thanks for listening. I'm Dana. This is the end of our three-part series of Our Remarkable Brain.